Midway in the fortnight of your coast-to-coast -coast voyage comes one of the world's greatest travel experiences, the transit of the Panama Canal, that cuts no less than 7,500 miles from the old sea route between the coasts of North America, the course around Cape Horn of the California gold seekers, and of many another sailor before and since their time. On December 19, 1989, while Panamanians were getting ready for the Christmas holidays, the United States was secretly mobilizing 26,000 troops for a midnight attack. When it was over, thousands lay dead and wounded, and the country was in shambles. Big questions remain. What exactly happened during the invasion of Panama, and why? Hello and welcome to the eighth installment of this Energy of Empire series. In this episode, we'll be looking at perhaps the most geostrategically important region of the Americas, Panama. Up to 14,000 ships pass through Panama's canal annually, with each one cutting several thousand miles out of its journey. Yet prior to the canal's construction, Panama as a country didn't even exist, and Nicaragua looked like it would provide a home for the project. The usual corrupt jostling from vested interests secured Panama as a location, with construction beginning in 1902. This was President Theodore Roosevelt's pet project. Panama was then a province of Colombia, albeit one with an active separatist movement. Colombia was reluctant to give the United States the kind of control it wanted over the canal zone, requesting $10 million to cede sovereignty. Rather than pay up, Roosevelt had a different solution in mind. Drawing on lessons learned in Hawaii, he encouraged Panamanian revolutionaries to proclaim independence. He then granted them diplomatic recognition and positioned American forces to block the Colombian army from interceding. A few gunboats prevented landfall and it was a fait accompli. Panama became a nation-state. The question arises, why did Theodore go about things this way? Was he trying to save the US taxpayer some money? Well, not exactly. According to economist and historian Murray Rothbard, in his essay The Treaties That Wall Street Wrote, the US government paid $40 million to the French Panama Canal Company, and the $10 million for Colombia would have come out of that, not from the taxpayer. The Canal Company, however, had been bought by a syndicate of Wall Street bankers, headed by J.P. Morgan & Company. Roosevelt's own brother-in-law was even involved. So Panama wasn't carved out of Colombia to build a canal, so much as it was to ensure maximum return for New York financiers. The canal project is a story in itself, with the importation of workers changing the demographic makeup of Panama. Over 5,000 men died during the US phase of construction, mostly from yellow fever and malaria. As an interesting aside, a Dr. William Gorgas, building on approaches he developed in Cuba, managed to practically eliminate these diseases and must have saved thousands of lives in doing so. The canal was completed in 1912, and by 1920 the United States had intervened in Panama four times. Over the decades, hostility towards the US presence grew. Technically, no Panamanian government had signed the treaty ceding control over the territory, and the US came to control ports never mentioned in it. Through the 50s and 60s, student protests were erupting into violence, threatening the long-term security of the waterway. 
Now there emerged a real split within the American empire as to how to deal with this problem. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter signed the Torrijos-Carter Treaties with the Panamanian dictator General Omar Torrijos. This established that the canal and 14 US army bases would be transferred to Panama by 1999. The US, however, maintained a perpetual right of military intervention. Not everyone in Panama was exactly delighted by the treaty, seeing it, quite accurately, as leaving the United States ultimately in control. The American political right, by contrast, saw it as a loss of control, a giving away of what was rightfully theirs, and this helped grow the political career of Ronald Reagan. The Panama Canal Zone is sovereign United States territory, just as much as Alaska is, as well as the states carved from the Louisiana Purchase. We bought it, we paid for it, and General Torrio should be told we're going to keep it. Murray Rothbard describes the liberal US media framing this as a morality play, where reactionaries and jingoists, emotionally and irrationally devoted to the mystique of American sovereignty in a foreign land, faced off against moderate internationalists, people who believed in friendly cooperation between the United States and third world nations. Rothbard reveals a deeper reason behind the treaty, and just like 75 years earlier, one that is inspired by bankers. During his years running Panama, Omar Torrijos had run up a staggering level of debt, much of which was owed to New York banks. Gaining control of the canal would allow Panama to pay off these debts. Writing as far back as the 70s, Rothbard suggests these banks poured money into Panama as part of a plan to set up a tax haven. We saw the manifestation of this revealed in the infamous Panama Papers in 2016. Twice in the 20th century, decisions by US presidents regarding Panama were determined by the interests of New York financial houses. In case you're wondering if that's a happy coincidence, these same New York banks had been busy pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into lobbying for the treaties. Then in 1980, staunch treaty opponent Ronald Reagan became president. Omar Torrijos died in a suspicious plane crash in 1981 and was replaced by General Manuel Noriega. Noriega was a CIA asset who assisted the agency's proxy war in Nicaragua. In exchange, he was allowed to traffic drugs into the United States unmolested. This relationship had been managed by now Vice President George Bush. Noriega wasn't happy being an American puppet, however, and the relationship broke down during the 80s. By his own account, the major reason for this was his refusal to negotiate the Canal Treaty. General Noriega told us that there were a number of demands placed on him directly, both through Poindexter and other meetings, where the State Department pressured him to change the Panamanian government's policy on several issues. He said that by far the most pressing was a demand by the United States that Noriega and the Panamanian government allow the U.S. to expand their military presence in Panama and to renegotiate the treaties to allow them to keep control over the 14 bases, military bases, that presently exist in Panama. The United States froze economic aid to Panama in 1987. In 1988, Noriega was indicted in U.S. courts for drug trafficking. Ronald Reagan then froze Panamanian government assets in U.S. banks, withheld fees for using the canal, and prohibited payments by U.S. agencies, firms, and individuals to the Noriega regime. 
This obviously sent the country spiralling into complete turmoil. The US then funded Noriega's political opponents in an election. When it became clear during the counting that Noriega was going to lose, the military halted the process and violence ensued. In a repeat of the way the United States provoked a war with the Philippines 90 years earlier, US soldiers began provocative actions intended to spark an incident to justify an invasion. This happened when the Panamanians shot and killed a US lieutenant under disputed circumstances. There were numerous actions undertaken by that Delta team which were reported in the United States press as uh, provocations undertaken by Panamanians against the United States. Infiltrations of United States positions, shots fired in the direction of, of uh, United States uh, perimeters and positions. Uh, roughing up of United States citizens in the streets. Sabina Virgo, a national labor organizer, was in Panama just weeks before the invasion. Provocations against the Panamanian people by United States military troops were very frequent in Panama. And they had several results, and in my opinion, probably a couple of different intents. One, I think, was to create an international incident was to have United States troops just hassle the Panamanian people until an incident resulted. And from that incident, the United States could then say that they were going into Panama for the protection of American life, which is in fact exactly what happened. In December 1989, with George Bush now in the White House, an invasion of Panama, Operation Just Cause, was launched. Critics labelled it Operation Just Cause, as in just because President Bush felt like it. Mr. Noriega, the drug-indicted, drug-related, indicted dictator of Panama. We want to bring him to justice, we want to get him out, and we want to restore democracy to Panama. And so when you read these outrageous charges by a drug-related, indicted dictator, discount them. They are total lies. This was the first post-Cold War overthrow for foreign government. The Berlin Wall had come down just a month earlier, whereas anti-communism had provided a justification for regime change operations for almost 50 years. Now the doctrine of humanitarian intervention was resurrected. This would be a staple throughout the 90s, until the war on terror allowed national security to come to the forefront once more. The civilian casualty numbers vary wildly, from a few hundred to over 4,000, with mass graves still being exhumed to this day. It is clear that US forces targeted civilian areas. According to witnesses, many of the surrounding residential neighborhoods were deliberately attacked and destroyed. The helicopters were heavily armed, firing powerful machine guns and rockets, and they were firing indiscriminately. They weren't just looking for military targets. They were firing at many civilians. People were running all over, trying to escape. They shot at everything that moved, without mercy and without thinking whether they were children or women or people fighting. Instead, everything that moved, they shot. We all thought that they would just take Noriega. They said that's what they wanted. They would take him and would respect everyone else. 
after the bomb the bombing been start been going on for a few few hours the soldiers say tell everybody to come out with their hand on their head and they direct us to the church when we were in the church about six o'clock in the morning all of a sudden the building start to burn in front of the church the people them as they know they have the only thing they have was inside the place they tried to run out to get water to halt it and the american soldiers tell them to get out some people you know stubborn they try to go in and the american soldiers he shot it up in the earth and the people that get scared and they run back we saw that the north americans were denying people access to their homes they sent people back and threatened them with their machine guns and forbid anyone to get close to the houses or walk in or around the alleys leading to the houses. Then they began to set the houses on fire. The Panamanian soldiers then know each alley, how to go in and how to come out and where to go and come through, you know, from one street to another street, climb up and go to a balcony and things. So the only way I think the American soldiers could get rid of that, that danger was to burn down the building then. That way they, they, the Panamanian soldier couldn't have nowhere to hide. 18,000 people were held in detention centers by the US Army, with some of them remaining in refugee camps for over a year. The United Nations adopted a resolution condemning the invasion as a flagrant violation of international law. Within hours of the invasion beginning, the presumptive winner of the May election, Guillermo Andara, was sworn in as president of Panama at a US military installation in the Canal Zone. In 1991, he proposed a constitutional amendment that would abolish Panama's right to have an army. If Panama could not defend the canal, the US military would have to remain. Andara then offered to renegotiate the treaty. Republicans, however, lost power. And with Democrats back in office, the US did withdraw from Panama in 1999. The militarists in the empire continue to make efforts to get a base back there to this day. Okay, thank you for listening. Next time we'll take a look at the first of two coups that took place during the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt's successor, William Howard Taft. That being the 1907 coup in Nicaragua.